Don't you love the name of Jesus? The name above any name in this room, any name upon this earth, he's higher than. Every knee will bow to him. Every tongue will confess him that Jesus is the Lord. We're in the, yes, amen. We're in the season of Lent. And um, Lent is a 40-day period of time before Easter when we abstain from certain practices as well as we begin new spiritual disciplines. The spiritual discipline we're practicing corporately together is that of contemplation, and specifically contemplating the cross. We're in a four-part series under contemplations of the cross, and last week we considered the joy of the cross. Jesus, who for the joy set before him, he um, endured the cross, and he scorned the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of God. Today we contemplate the seed of the cross. And the question I want you to contemplate as we begin is, what season of life am I in? Last Sunday when I woke up, it was sort of warm and balmy. This morning when I woke up, it was snowing outside for you as well, I'm sure. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes it's hard to tell what season we are in. (laughs) You know, if you're an accountant, you know what season you're in, right? This is tax season, right? If you've uh, been through surgery, this is your convalescent season. If you're a student, well, this is your season of affliction. <laughs> and if you're, uh, if you're into basketball, you know what it is. It's March Madness season, right? I turned on the television last night about seven. I saw Butler winning. And I can't tell you the joy inside of me. I hope no one here is a University of Florida fan, but seeing Butler, these guys that really need each other to play and winning games. Well, um, what season are you in? What season am I in? One couple who've been married about 25 years, grappling with this question, they were traveling down a country road and looking at the beautiful scenery outside, and the wife said to her husband, so this is how it's going to be, Right? Well, he was startled by her bluntness. <laughs> he was muddling over a problem in his head, not talking to her, right? And so he said to her, what do you mean? This is how it's going to be. You see, she was longing for a conversation, <laughs> somebody who could engage with her, listen to her, you know, have a real relationship. Their lives were so focused on their kids, they really didn't have much to say to each other. Debbie and I both sense that we are entering into a new season of our lives. Our youngest son, Josh, if you can believe this, is 16 and beginning to drive. One last one to teach to drive. Jimmy, our 20-year-old, is in ROTC and will be in the Army in just about one year. Betsy, our only daughter, my beloved daughter, is married to Matt. And she's teaching history over at Tuscarora, taking graduate courses. Chris, our oldest son, is married to Rachel, living in Baltimore, finishing his last clinical rotation, graduating, Lord willing, from medical school in May, and will be going to Birmingham, Alabama to start his residency there in emergency medicine. Life is beginning to change. Debbie and I are sensing we're stepping into another season of our life. That's why the scripture says here in Ecclesiastes, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. You know, Debbie and I would walk with the kids through the mountains when they were little. And then Debbie had a major car accident 19 years ago. And yesterday, we were 
walking up another mountain. And um, it was the um, <coughs> first mountain she climbed in about 19 years. And we took it on our cell phone and said, this is the first of many mountain climbing exploits. We're looking for another mountain to climb. Joseph Lieberman, who just uh, finished his career in um, the Senate, senator from Connecticut, announced by saying, I'm entering into another season of my life. Oprah Winfrey, 25 years on the air, is leaving her show. She's entering another season of her life. Well, we're in this spring season. And in the spring, the farmers look at the fields that are barren and begin to imagine the crops that could be growing, the seed being planted. Tennis players, spring season, look at the empty courts, think about breaking out the racket. The golfers, <laughs> look at the empty golf courses, think about teeing it up. You see, there's a season for everything and a time for every activity under heaven. There's, there's a time to be born and a time to die. Elizabeth Taylor was born 79 years ago and died this week. One of the first movies I ever saw was of Elizabeth Taylor playing Cleopatra. Maybe you saw it too. I heard about her eight marriages. I heard about her seven husbands. I heard about her beautiful lavender eyes. I heard about her fame and her wealth and the movies she made, but I never heard about her faith. That's why I'm so saddened by her passing. I never heard about her faith. There's a time to be born and a time to die. Ecclesiastes says God makes everything beautiful in his time, and God has put eternity in the hearts of mankind. So we search in this world for the beautiful things, don't we? We search for the eternal, the everlasting. We look at events like last couple weeks over in Japan, the earthquake, the tsunami, and we try to make sense of stuff like this. We go like, why do things like this happen? And then we see the beautiful. This week in the newspaper, there was an article about a man who lives here in Frederick whose brothers were over there. And um, the brother, one brother Facebooked him saying about the earthquake. And uh, he did, had an escape route out of Sendai. So he went on his um, GPS, his you know, Google, and he mapped him out a route to escape from the devastation. The other brother was a dentist, and he also mapped him out a route, and they made it down to Tokyo, the two brothers out of Sendai. Something really beautiful to me in the midst of a disaster. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. There also is a time to plant and a time to uproot. The very same uh, tomato plant you plant in the spring, you uproot in the fall. And for you who are parents, this is the time to be planting seed into your children's lives. This is the time for you grandparents to be planting seed into your grandchildren's life. You see, there's a seed that gets planted into us. And then there's a seed we plant in other people's lives. And God wants us to live a fruit-bearing life. He wants our lives to bear fruit. So first of all, we must receive good seed into good soil becomes anchored with rooted, and then that begins to bear fruit. So the second question I want you to think about is, what kind of soil am I? Jesus taught a parable. Actually, this is one of his favorite stories. He taught it in all the synoptic gospels. In Luke chapter 8, in verse 4. One day, Jesus told a story 
Jesus loved to tell stories in the form of a parable, a truth beside this story, to a large crowd. People had gathered from many towns to hear him. So the context for this storytelling is in the midst of a large crowd of people. And perhaps Jesus told this story many times. It would be a story familiar to people listening. A farmer went out to plant his seed. Now the scene here is of a farmer with a strap across his shoulder and um, a seed bag fastened to his waist with an opening in the seed bag and reaching to that seed bag like I'm reaching in my pocket (laughs) and finding some seed. (laughs) This is soybean seed. (laughs) The farmer would begin to broadcast that seed onto the soil, not knowing the true condition of the soil. For this parable has four different kinds of soil. The farmer is Jesus Christ, or the evangelist, bringing forth the good news. The soil is the condition of the heart, and the seed is the word of God. And the farmer went out to plant his seed. And as he scattered it, some of the seed fell onto a footpath, a hardened place, where it was stepped on, and the birds ate the seed. The first seed fell onto a hardened path. That's why the scripture says, encourage each other day after day, lest any become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. On this hardened path, it had no chance for the seed to become embedded in the soil, to draw nutrients from the soil. You see, many things can become in the way of hearing the word of Jesus. Some people just aren't interested. Some people become hostile to this message. Jesus would later explain when the disciples said, what does this mean? Like, we don't get it. He said that those along the path are those who hear, but the devil comes along and steals the word from their heart so they cannot believe and be saved. Their path has become beaten hard by their comings and goings, by their busyness of their life. They simply don't believe that there is truth or that God gives us truth. A hardened heart can become softened and receptive, but usually it takes a trial or a tribulation or affliction to soften that heart. One poet wrote about this, saying, Into this world to eat and sleep and to know no reason why he was born, save to consume the corn, devour the cattle, flock, and fish, and leave behind an empty dish. Such is the condition of the hardened soul. They don't believe that God's word because they don't believe that truth can be known. They live in a relativistic world where absolutes aren't known to them. They may be hostile to God or just disinterested. The heart may become as hard as nails. My uncle was a hardened man. His mother was very religious. But at a very early juncture in his life, he turned away from God and he became running from God. His religion involved heavy drinking and gambling. When I came to faith, I told him about my conversion. He rolled his eyes and lifted his Budweiser toward me and said, another one bites the dust. He would scoff at my new faith. He would mock me being associated with Christ and with Christians. 
he would ridicule me at times of prayer. He'd say, when I finish praying, something like Thanksgiving, he'd say, and pray for me. Like uh, Captain Dan, if you remember Forrest Gump, shaking his fist at God, challenging him to strike him dead, so my uncle lived his life in unbelief. Now, there were many times when I tried to sow the seed of the Word of God into his life, but he was totally unreceptive to me. I witnessed to him many, many, many times, but all the time he's just not interested. Thanks, but no thanks. I learned that um, my uncle passed away, and his wife asked me to do the funeral. And I cannot tell you the sadness I had for my uncle, not knowing uh, where he had gone as I stepped toward this funeral. As I arrived at the funeral home, his brother, who lives in Dubois, Pennsylvania, said to me, he said, I must tell you, R, about the most amazing miracle. Your uncle, who was so hardened in unbelief, three weeks before he passed away, said to me, how can I be saved? And I can't tell you the great joy that welled up in my soul as I learned the news of my uncle's conversion. You see, over the course of his months of wrestling with cancer and going through radiation and chemotherapy, it just broke him down to the place where he was soil ready to receive the word. So I say to you, don't lose hope for those who have hardened around you. Life has a way of humbling us. Trials come into our life and afflictions. And the circumstances of our life can press us to the place where we become receptive to that seed. The first seed Jesus spoke about here, or the first soil, was that of hardened soil. The second seed fell among the rocks, or the rocky soil. The good news is, in this soil, the seed began to grow quickly. The bad news is, the seed soon withered and died for lack of moisture. Jesus explained to us this seed that was sown onto the rock. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy, but when they hear it, they have no root. They believe for just a while, but in a time of testing, they fall away. Jesus is talking here about shallowness, about not having deep roots. Much of the land was a thin veneer of two or three inches of topsoil on top of bedrock. When the seed fell onto the shallow soil, the seed sprung up quickly and grew like crazy, but then the sun beat down upon that little plant, and the roots being shallow were exposed to the sun, and soon the plant withered and died. And I've seen this effect happen in so many people's lives, where they've made a profession of the faith, but never taking possession of the faith. The word of God has been sown into their life, but they've not developed strong roots, such that when the difficult times come, the pressures and pain and problems of life come, what happens is the sun, if you will, withers the roots and that plant dies. Every person here will be tested with trials. That's why James says, consider it joy when trials come to your life because they produce within us perseverance that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, the trials that come into your life are meant to press you closer to God to let your roots go deeper into his, the soil of his love. One mistake we make is putting brand new Christians on the road 
giving their testimonies before they're allowed to develop their roots. A shallow Christian without much roots is not grounded in the word of God or centered in Jesus. They aren't prepared for the hard times which inevitably will come. So in this room are people who find themselves in trials. In this room are people coming out of trials. There's people here getting ready to go into trials. Trials are part of our human condition. I've heard it said about Africa that it's only like a river a mile wide, but only an inch deep. But I'll tell you, I was talking this week with my friend Francois Ingemite from Central African Republic, and his roots are going very, very deep in the soil of God's love. He himself has seven children, and two of his brothers have died, leaving behind ten children. So in his household are 17 children. Kind of a trial within itself. And then in his land, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa, 38% of the population is dead or is dying of HIV-AIDS. And there are so many children walking the streets of his city without a mother and father. And they're trying to provide a place for these children to come into, a school for them to be educated, a place where they can be fed food and clothes on their back and be shared the love of Jesus. The roots are going very deep. When you talk to Francois, he'll say, the cries of the people are the calling upon the church. And then there are the crowded hearts. There's the hardened soil and the rocky soil, but also the thorny soil. Jesus explained there was seed that fell into the thorns. The seed was growing up in the thorns. Eventually, the seed was being choked out by the thorns. The thorns are life's worries and riches and pleasures, the distractions and attractions, the pleasures and the treasures of this world. You see, Jesus himself, being the farmer, planted seed. If you read the words of Scripture, they're like seed to us. God is sowing into our lives. Jesus was trying to teach us not to worry about different things. Something we worry about is something we're not responsible for, something we have no control over, but yet we worry. Jesus said, don't worry about what you eat or you drink. Don't worry about your life. Don't worry about your body. For is not your life more important than your food? Isn't your body more important than your clothes? He said, look at the birds. Jesus said, you know, study the birds. Your heavenly Father takes care of each and every one of them. He um, takes notice of the sparrow. They don't sow seed. They don't gather into barns. They don't reap a harvest. Yet the heavenly Father takes care of each and every one of them. And then he said, and are you not much more important than they are? What Jesus was trying to teach us was that as the Father took care of him, so the Father will take care of us. When we worry, we simply try to be in control of that which we have no control over. So the seed is planted into our life. But there's things that choke out the seed, like the worries of this life, like the pleasures of this world, like the treasures of this world. You see, you have an inheritance that is reserved in heaven for you. You have a treasure you will never lose. Paul taught us, he said, you brought nothing into this world and you'll take nothing out of this world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we shall be 
discontent. But those who want to get rich, they fall into temptation and a trap, into many harmful and deceitful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all different kinds of evil. You see, the heart gets crowded out. The good seed gets crowded out by life's worries and quests for riches and pleasures. A heart that is overcome by the pleasures and treasures of this world is not a believing heart. Many begin well in their love for God, but their love of money and love of pleasure overtakes them, and they become choked out. But then there is the good seed. (laughs) I'm glad we got here. The fourth seed. The seed that fell into the soil. The seed that grew and multiplied and produced a crop that was 30, 60, and 100 times as much as was planted. Jesus was explaining that the good seed stands for the person with a good heart who hears the word of God and retains it and by persevering produces a crop. God has sown seed into you that that seed could be multiplied many times over, 30, 60, 100-fold. God has sown healing into you that you might sow a healing word into someone else. God has sown encouragement into you that you might sow encouragement into someone else. God has sown comfort into you that you might sow comfort into somebody else. You see, the good seed is the person who hears the word of God and retains it and perseveres in the journey until such time as they produce much fruit. God wants you to produce so much fruit. So let me ask you this question. What kind of fruit is your life producing? What kind of fruit am I producing? If God has sown seed into us, and we are good soil, and we have become receptive to the seed of God, and God has watered that seed inside of us. What kind of seed or what kind of fruit are we producing? Now I think we're ready for the main text this morning. John chapter 12 and verse 23. Here we go. Now I'm going to give you the context for this statement. We know that Jesus ministered much of his ministry to the Jews. But there came a time just before the cross when the Greeks came up to Passover. And the Greeks found a Greek-sounding name, Philip, and said, Sir, we would see Jesus. So Philip went to Andrew, and Philip and Andrew said, The Greeks have come. And Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now we know the glory of God is when the invisible God manifests himself. God had manifested himself many times before. And Now, the glorification is referring to the crucifixion on the cross and to the burial in the tomb, to the resurrection on the third day and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. Jesus had said many times, it is not yet my time. Do you remember there when the the wedding feast and they had run out of wine and his mother said, Jesus, they're out of wine, and he said, my time has not yet come? You know, I believe that Jesus was invited to the wedding feast 
because I believe Jesus brought joy to that occasion. I believe that Jesus was fun to be with. I like to think about Jesus giving piggyback rides to the kids. I think about Jesus, you know, dancing the wedding songs with the couple. I think about Jesus telling stories. I think about Jesus being full of joy. But in this wedding, there was no joy because they had run out of wine. But he said, the hour has not yet come. But now he is saying before the cross, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if I was one of his disciples, I would have said, yes, we've been waiting for this hour for so long. You know, we've been under the rule of Rome, but now Jesus rules. Now the king is going to bring forth his kingdom, and we're going to be on his right and left. Now Jesus is going to be glorified. Yes, we get, you know, to be first. But then Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Unless the kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. I wonder when Jesus said this, if he wasn't kind of walking through the marketplace, and there he saw a vendor with all kinds of seeds. And he took those seeds in his hand, and he let all the seeds fall through except one seed, which he held up. He explained that if the seed remained in his hand without being planted, it would always be just one seed. Another way to say this is, if you have a package of seeds and you bought them from a store and the seeds stay in the package, they'll always be in the package, right? The seed, if planted, will fill its potential. But the seed unplanted will never fulfill its potential. If the seed is planted, it can spring to life and become a stalk of grain. You keep the seed in your hand, and you stifle all the possibilities. (laughs) You see, it's easy enough to count the seeds in a tomato, but it's harder to count the tomatoes in the seed. And every farmer knows that that seed has great potential. Now, that seed will not come to harvest immediately. There's a time wherein that seed must be planted when you wait for the harvest to come. But if the seed is planted, the ground would press against it, and the rain would fall to soften it, and the outer casing of the seed would fall off and break, and the seed would be released, and the roots would go downward, and the seed would sprout, and eventually the seed would bear fruit. What Jesus was teaching us was the only way to get to life is through death. The seed itself, himself, must die. The lesson is clear. For one grain to produce some grain, it had to be broken. The seed had to die. And the result of the brokenness or death was the power to reproduce an enormous multiplication of grain. It was necessary then for the seed to die. Jesus now is speaking of himself. It was totally necessary for Jesus Christ to die. You see, Jesus is the author of the gospel. And just in case you've never heard this gospel, let me try to explain it to you. God really loves you. (laughs) 
And God wants to have a relationship with you. And knowing that we all were trapped in our sin, he sent Jesus Christ from heaven, his son, to this earth to be born of a virgin. And he lived a sinless life. But there came a point when Jesus went to a cross and all of your sin and my sin was laid upon him. The wrath of God was poured out upon the sin being laid upon Jesus. The scriptures declare in Isaiah 53 that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that fell upon him engendered the peace we received. For all of us had gone astray like sheep. But the Lord laid the iniquity of us all onto Jesus. You see, the seed was Jesus. And the seed had to be broken. And he was broken at the cross. And there he died, not for his own sins, but he died for your sins and my sins, that the seed of God may be placed inside of us, the life-giving seed. And when this seed gets placed into us, we come alive. Jesus was put to death in the body, but he was made alive in the spirit. So for each one of us, what God wants us to die to is the flesh, to die to sin, to die to the sinful nature, that we may be made alive in the spirit. See, God is not mocked. <laughs> Whatsoever man sows, that also will he reap. If he sows to the flesh, that man will reap destruction. You see, if you sow violence, like we have sown violence in our culture, you will reap destruction. And if you sow hatred, there you will see strife and division and dissension. And if you sow rumors and gossip, what you'll see is the destruction of somebody's um, reputation. And if you sow sexual immorality, which our society has sowed so freely and abundantly, you'll reap destruction. Whatsoever a man sows, that also will he reap. If he sows to the flesh, he will reap destruction. But if he sows to the spirit, he will reap everlasting life. Jesus was sowing the greatest seed of all, the seed of eternal life. He said these words, the man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it unto eternal life. What was Jesus saying? That in order to come alive, you must die. You must die to the old habits, the old patterns, the old lifestyle, the old man. You have to put off that old man, which is being corrupted with deceitful desires, and be made new in the attitude of your mind, and put on the new man. Musically, you will never reach your potential unless you die to that old self. One of the masters, Paderewski, when he finished the concert, somebody said to him, Paderewski, you are a genius. To which he replied, before I was a genius, I was a drudge. His brilliance came through hard work and self-denial. Jesus said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross every day and follow me. Athletically, you will never reach your potential unless you die to that old self. One of the greatest runners of all time, Jim Ryan, who ran in the Olympics, who ran a four-minute mile when he was 18, was said, Jim Ryan, you're a great runner. To which he said, when I run, when I learn to run, I learn to run until I could not take 
another step. And then I would run until my lungs were about to burst. And then I would run until I was about to pass out. And then I knew I was making progress. Jesus said, if you want to come after me, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross every day and follow me. Academically, you'll never reach your potential until you die to self. The president of Stanford University, he was in a doctoral examination, and the, uh, he came in late. And there were two questions on the board. And the teacher said to them when they finished the exam, just take these questions home and just study them for the rest of the weekend. And if you have an answer, come in, bring it in Monday. So he looked at those questions on Friday night, didn't fall asleep, stayed up all Saturday. On Sunday, he had an answer to one of the questions. And he brought it to the professor. The professor said, said um, thank you for this answer this question. You've solved one of mathematics' unsolved problems. So if you came in late to the exam, I told the students, here's your exam. But there's two questions on the board that have never been solved before. And he stayed up for three days and he solved one of those unsolvable problems and became the president of Stanford University. And he said, what would I have done if I knew that was an unsolvable problem? I'd probably given up on it. You see, God knew that you had a problem. And the biggest problem you had was you were a slave to sin. And when he came, he came to deliver you from the slavery to sin. Dying, then, is the requirement for spiritual vitality. If your life is stagnant, if it's not moving forward, it could be that there's something God is asking you to die to. To die to selfishness. To die to self-ambition. To die to envy. To die to jealousy. To die to gluttony. To die to pride. You see, the pathway to life will always be through death. Jesus died on a cross that we might become alive. And we die to our sin in order that life may be brought into us. Crucifixion is a decision. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. When, we when we're crucified, we cannot crucify ourselves. Our old self is being crucified. It's yielding ourselves, allowing the pressures and pains and problems in our life to be crucified with Christ. Dying to our old self. Raised to a blessed, fruitful, powerful, Christ-like, spirit-filled life. God has used many problems and pressures and pain in my life to crucify that part of me in order that his life may be birthed in me. God will use difficult people for you to die to that part of yourself. What most often God will use is problems you can't solve or people you can't control to die to the old self. You see, what he wants you to do is die to the old self that the new self can be formed and raised to life. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, here we are in this place.
listening to your word, asking ourselves the question, what season of life are we in? And what kind of soil really are we? And what kind of fruit is being produced in our life? We were still, just for a moment, we grapple with the deeper question of what are you asking us to die to? What sin in our life has been in control of us that you're asking us to die to? So here in this place, Lord, we open our hearts up for examination and for contemplation. And we say to you, Jesus, speak to us. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Open us up afresh and anew. Show us the areas in our life that you want to have control over, that you want to work deeply into, you want to deliver us from. Father, here we are. We are your people. We're available to you, Lord. We're your servants. We want to bear so much fruit with our life. We want your seed to be planted in us and become deeply rooted in us. We know there's something you want to uproot. So, Father, would you do your work in us? Show us the sin you want to remove from us that we can walk in newness of life. Many here, Lord, are grappling with the question also of, am I really his? So, Lord, we open our hearts to you and we confess, Jesus Christ, forgive us for our sins, which are many. We believe you became our substitute upon the cross. We believe you died in the body to be made alive in the spirit. We ask that we might also die to our flesh, die to our sin, that you might make us come alive again. In this Easter season, Lord, do something miraculous. Breathe new life into us. Make us like a soil receptive to your seed planted deeply into us. We might produce fruit for you. God, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us?